You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Father, we thank you and we praise you in this place for your goodness, for your kindness, and for your mercy towards us this morning. Lord, we ask that as we gather to hear the preaching of the word, that you would in these next moments together give us ears to hear. Father, we believe with every ounce of our beings that nothing of any lasting significance will be accomplished apart from your spirit this morning. And so, Father, would you come in such a way that you would get glory for yourself in these next moments? Would you come in in such a way that your people would be helped? In such a way that we would be convicted of our sins? In such a way that Jesus Christ would be seen as our greatest treasure? Father, we need your help in this. Go before us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 1970, a British rock band named Matthew's Southern Comfort released a hit single that topped the charts in the early 70s. The name of this song was Woodstock, a song celebrating the famous music festival from the year before. The chorus of the song goes like this. We are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Back to the garden. Now, admittedly, I have no idea what the first two lines of this chorus actually mean. But I want to suggest that whether they knew it or not, this song has touched on something profoundly true and immensely important. Namely, every single one of us is longing to get back to the garden. Not the garden of Woodstock with its psychedelics and its promiscuity. Each of us is longing to get back to the garden of God. Back to the place where God dwelt together with man in perfect harmony. Back to where Yahweh used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Back to the place where God and man spoke to one another as a man speaks with a friend. I'm telling you this morning, whether you know it or not, that the deepest longing of your heart is to get back to the garden. The deepest longing of every human soul is to get back to the garden where God is. And so as we look this morning at Exodus 
chapters 30 through 31, we're going to see that it is God who is at work bringing his people back to the garden. It is God who is at work. And along the way, we will discover three things about God's character. Number one, we're going to see that we have a God who hears his people. Number two, we're going to see that we have a God who dwells with his people. And number three, we're going to see that we have a God who hallows his people. So let's jump right in to point one. We have a God who hears his people. As we turn the page to Exodus chapter 30, Moses is instructed to make the altar of incense. In contrast with the bronze altar, this altar is not to be used for sacrificial offerings, but rather for the burning of sweet-smelling incense. This altar was to be made of wood and overlaid with gold, and it was much smaller than the bronze altar. It stood just three feet high and one and a half feet wide and one and a half foot long. Okay, it's not uh, too much difference in size from these speakers to my right or to my left. But what this altar lacked in stature, it made up for in significance. Because the placement of this altar signifies how important it was. This altar was placed directly in front of the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. In other words, the altar of incense was as close as you could possibly get to the holy place, the most holy place that is, without actually going behind the curtain, okay? Just feet from the altar of incense stood the place the Ark of the Covenant, above which God has said, there I will meet with you. And so, twice a day, every morning and every evening here on the altar of incense, a priest was commanded to come and to burn a mixture of spices and frankincense that would fill the tabernacle with sweet-smelling smoke. The exact recipe for this incense is laid out here in detail at the end of this chapter. Now, much could be said here about the altar of incense. But I believe that the single most important thing that I can say about the altar this morning is this. In the scriptures, there is a significant connection, a significant link between the burning of incense on the altar, on the one hand, and the prayers of God's people, okay? In the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see this connection put on display again and again. Let me just read a couple places where we find this connection. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Or, Revelation 5.8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And lastly, my favorite one here from the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, 
starting in verse 8. Listen to this. This is so good. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, just to clarify, Zechariah has just been commissioned to go and burn incense on the very altar that we just took a look at in Exodus chapter 30. Okay? Now, now pay attention to what the people are doing while Zechariah goes to burn this incense. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Isn't this a fascinating account? We see here that when the priest went in to burn incense, the people gathered to pray. Luke describes this as the hour of incense, which seems to be a time set apart as an hour of prayer for the people, both in the morning and in the evening. And the picture that we get here is that as this sweet-smelling smoke from the altar rose unto God, so too did the prayers of God's people. The people were praying with confidence that their prayers were actually finding their way into the courts of the living God. They were actually being heard by the creator of the universe. And I want you to see here that the altar of incense is one of God's intended means to bring his people one step closer back to the Garden of Eden. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, we learned there that the Lord God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And now here, through the burning of incense, God was once more inviting his people to speak with him every morning, and every evening, twice a day, in the cool of the day. Here is God ushering his people back closer into relationship with himself. Because, brothers and sisters, we have a God who hears his people. He heard their cry for rescue from slavery in Egypt. He heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And here, at the altar of incense, God continued to hear his people's prayers and petitions twice a day, every day. Let me just say here that if the Old Testament people of God, who could not enter into the Holy of Holies, who couldn't go into the tent of meeting or even into the courtyard of the tabernacle, if those guys prayed with any sort of confidence that their prayers were actually being heard, how much greater confidence ought you and I to pray with who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ? What kind of confidence do we have before the throne of God that we are actually heard, that our prayers, when we lift them up, actually ascend to the throne room of God, where God is ready to hear our petitions, our praises, 
Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Let us pray. Let us lift up our requests. Let us lift up our songs as well. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we have a God who hears us. His ears have not been stopped. Think about it like this. Randy Alcorn, in his fictional work, Safely Home, wrote about one American's experience of attending a prayer meeting in a small, illegal house church in China for the first time. Just listen to this description. He says it like this. The prayers were short and long, informal and formal, but all had a passion Ben had never sensed. Many years ago, he'd fallen asleep at prayer meetings. No one could fall asleep here. No words seemed nominal. No prayers seemed scripted. More than that, Ben had the unmistakable sense that these prayers did not stop at the ceiling. They passed through it, gathering momentum, a cumulative force so explosive that it threatened to blow off the roof of the old house. Brothers and sisters, We have a God who hears the prayers of his people. And at every stage of redemptive history, God has been actively bringing his people one step closer to a place where we will once more speak to him face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And this brings us to our second point. We have a God who dwells with his people. We see this in the first half of Exodus chapter 31. Here the Lord sets apart two men, one named Bezalel and the other Aholiab. And Bezalel in particular is set apart by God to take primary artistic oversight of the construction of the tabernacle. And the language that is used here to describe Bezalel being set apart is rather striking. It should get our attention. In verse 3, the Lord says, I have filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving, wo- and in carving wood to work in every craft. God fills Bezalel with his spirit so that he might be able to construct and to oversee every aspect of the tabernacle described in chapters 25 through 30. He was to be God's appointed instrument for turning these verbal instructions into concrete realities. Let me just say here, this deserves a full sermon But here in Exodus chapter 31, God has once and for all dignified the work of the artist. The call to create beautiful things with one's hands unto the glory of God is no secondary calling. Pursue it with all of your might if that is your calling. But I want to focus on here in particular the parallels between Bezalel's commission to create the tabernacle 
and the Lord's work in creating the heavens and the earth. There are at least three striking parallels here that I want to draw your attention to. First, notice the prominence of the Spirit of God in both the construction of the tabernacle and in God's creation of the heavens and the earth. One commentator writes this, The gifting of Bezalel with the Spirit of God recalls the opening chapter of Genesis where the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters in preparation for God's ordering and filling an earth that is formless and empty. The Spirit plays a vital role, both in God's creation and in the role of Bezalel creating the tabernacle. Second, notice the word work here, used both in the creation account and in Exodus 31. Bezalel was given skill in order to work. And in Genesis 2-3, same word, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And lastly, consider the parallel with Proverbs 3-19, which I consider to be by far the most striking of all. The Lord by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds drop down dew. The Lord founded the earth by wisdom, and it is wisdom that is given to Bezalel. By understanding, the Lord established the heavens, and understanding is given to Bezalel. By the Lord's knowledge, the deeps broke open and knowledge is given to Bezalel. In the Hebrew, these two passages go three for three in the exact same order. And I say all this because I want you to see that there is a striking connection between God's creation of the heavens and the earth and his commission to Bezalel to create the tabernacle. What am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is this. We have a God who desires to dwell with his people. Isn't that remarkable? We see here God's relentless pursuit of mankind. Because man had been barred from entering the garden, God made a way through Bezalel to create a space where his presence might once more dwell on the earth. Do you see God's Mercy here, bringing rebels like you and I as close as we could have possibly gotten at this stage in redemptive history back to his presence. That's what he's doing. That's why they call it the tent of meeting, right? He's bringing his presence closer to rebels. And I might add here that this morning, in and through Jesus Christ, we have been given a better Bezalel. Do you know that? We've been given a better Bezalel because through Jesus Christ, that master artist, God has done something that goes far beyond the scope of the tabernacle, far beyond the scope of any human artist. He has taken his spirit And he's filled not a tabernacle, not a building, 
but he has made you and I, his people, to be his temples. Do you know that? He has made a way for his holy presence, not just to come near to us, but to actually indwell us. Praise God that we have a God who dwells among his people. His pursuit of us has and is relentless. And we should praise him that he desires to bring us back to the garden. This brings us to our third point. We have a God who hallows his people. After spending six and a half chapters giving detailed instructions for how to build the tabernacle, we are given a surprising conclusion here in verse 13. Instead of adding further instructions for how to put the cherry on top, as it were, for the tabernacle construction, instead, Israel is given here a reminder to keep the Sabbath. The Lord says to Moses in verse 13, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? After laying out all the instructions and filling Bezalel with his spirit and equipping his people for the most important work that they have yet to undertake, he reminds them to observe the day of rest. It's as if the Lord is saying here, that as important as all your work might be, whatever it, is, whatever it is, it is never to take precedence over the Sabbath. The Lord grounds this command to keep the Sabbath as he, all, as he often does in the pattern of creation. There is a six-and-one pattern that the people are called to keep. Six days of work, one day of rest. Verse 17, the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Once more, God is graciously inviting his people one step closer back into the garden, to the place where he worked six days and rested on the seventh. Once more, he's inviting them to participate in his work that is now completed. Let me just say, there are so many good things that I want to be able to say here about the Sabbath. I want to spend another 20 minutes on this at least, but I cannot, brothers and sisters. And so I just want to commend to you this morning, go back and listen to Pastor Jonathan's message from about six months ago on this very topic. I, les- I listened to this personally on Monday. Man, I was so encouraged, so challenged as to what it looks like to keep the Sabbath well as a Christian. And so, man, take this afternoon. Like, don't, don't put it off. Take this afternoon and go listen to that sermon. Talk about what it looks like for you and your family to keep the Sabbath well as a follower of Jesus Christ. But for now, I want to highlight a second purpose for keeping the Sabbath. One that the Lord gives us here in Exodus chapter 31 that we have not yet seen before. Listen to what it says in verse 13. 
He says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. One of the reasons that the Lord commands his people to keep the Sabbath is so that they would know that it is Yahweh who sanctifies them. It is Yahweh who sets them apart. It is Yahweh who makes them unique above all peoples of the earth. It sort of means to hallow something by the way, to set it apart as holy and unique and special above all other things. Think about it like this. Kids, most of you in this room probably have a favorite toy, okay? Back in my day, it was Raphael, the Ninja Turtle, right? I don't know what your favorite toy is, But most of you have a favorite one. This is the toy that you play with first when you get back from a trip, right? This is the toy that you would most miss if you somehow lost or misplaced it. Maybe it's a baby doll for you. Maybe it's a Ninja Turtle for you. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I want you to think about that toy for just a minute. And now I want you to consider this. In the same way that you set your favorite toy above all other toys that you own, the God of the universe has chosen out of his goodness and kindness and love and mercy, not because of any merit of our own, he's chosen to place that kind of favor upon his people. We have a God who makes us unique holy, separate, distinct. And the Lord wants his people to remember this. He wants us to think on the source of our holiness, to remember that it's Yahweh who sanctifies us. It's Yahweh who sets us apart. Yahweh who makes us unique. And how was Israel to remember this? What were they to do? How could they keep from taking credit for their own holiness? How could they keep from boasting about their perceived superiority to others? Answer, by observing the Sabbath. One of the reasons that God commands his people to rest is so that we might be able to step back and remember that it's God who sanctifies us. It's God who does it. Did you hear that? It's God who does it. It's his work that is decisive in our sanctification, not ours. Let me say that one more time. It's God's work that is decisive in our sanctification, not ours. This was true of Israel, and it's true of us here this morning. One of the reasons that we should pursue a pattern of rest and worship on Sundays is so so that we can acknowledge that the ultimate source of our sanctification is not ourselves. It's not mainly our obedience. It's not mainly our law-keeping. It's not mainly our consistency in reading the Word. It's not mainly our zeal for good works. It's not mainly our disciple-making. It's not mainly our killing of sin. The source of our becoming more like Jesus Christ is God himself, period. Do you see that? 
Do you know that? Do you believe that? It's really easy to get this twisted, isn't it? What does this look like practically? What does this look like for us on a daily and weekly basis? It looks like this. It looks like us saying together with Paul from 1 Corinthians 15.10. If you don't know that verse, write it down. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Go memorize it. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul worked harder than any of them. So yes, we work. Yes, we fight sin. Yes, we should pursue holiness with all of our might. We should strive to dig into God's word. We should strive to pray with more fervency and more consistency. We should do all of those things. And then, brothers and sisters, every Sunday on the first day of the week, we should step back and we should consider the week that has gone by. And here, we should acknowledge the glorious reality that it has all been the work of God. Do you hear that? It's been all his work, the effort, his, the energy, his, the desire to do good, his. If there are any ways that we have become more like Christ in the past six days, praise God, because it was his work, not yours. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who hallows his people. And he invites us to remember this by resting on the Sabbath. Resting as our God did on the seventh day in the garden. Resting as our Savior Jesus Christ did when he rose triumphant over the grave on the first day of the week. Rest and remember that we have a God who hallows us. Let me close by reading once more the lyrics that I began this message with. We are stardust. We are golden. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. No man in history has ever done what the song commends. No man in history has ever gotten himself back to the garden. No efforts of ours will get us there. No amount of sacrifices, no amount of prayers, not a tabernacle perfectly constructed. None of these could have ever atoned for the sins of man. None of these were ever enough to bridge the gap between sinful man and an infinitely holy God. So, our God relentless in his pursuit of his people, made a better way. You see, back in the garden, back on that fateful day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and plunged our world into darkness, back on the very day that mankind was barred from God's presence, God made a promise. A promise of a future offspring 
The promise of a deliverer that would come and strike the head of the serpent and break the back of the curse that has stained God's once perfect world. I want to testify this morning before God and before all of you that this rescuer has come. He's come. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's come, the one who is able to take us beyond the curtain, behind the guards that have always stood between us and our creator. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of God. And I testify this morning that he took on flesh and that he laid that same flesh on a Roman cross. He laid it on that Roman cross And he suffered and died in the place of sinners like you and I. So that through his flesh, you and I might once more with confidence come into the presence of God. You see, you and I, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. But because we could not, Jesus Christ made a way through his flesh. Let's pray together. Father, who are we to presume to come before your throne? Who are we to be able to look in on the glories of Exodus chapter 30 and 31? Who are we to consider the excellencies of your Son, Jesus Christ, who once and for all made a way for us to come back into your presence? Father, we praise you for your mercy this morning. We praise you for your kindness. And we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ that if there are any in this room that have not yet looked to Jesus Christ in faith, that they would not wait another moment. Father, would you draw them by your spirit to trust in the once and for all accomplished work of Jesus Christ? Would you draw them in these next moments to confess their sins and to cling with fresh found faith to Jesus And would they then with joy see the glorious reality that all of their sins have been washed away? Let us come to the table this morning with this kind of assurance. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.